Okay. I'm going to, if you would allow me, I would like to pray, and then I'm going to tell you about what we're going to talk about this semester, and uh, we'll be brief. So let's pray. Um, Father, we do ask, again, that in the midst of uh, cramping and aching legs as people are standing up, and um, in the midst of a hot room and feeling overwhelmed, that you would meet us, and that you would show us who you are and how beautiful you indeed really are. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most thought-provoking films in the past ten years, uh, the most uh, fascinating, smartest, sophisticated social commentaries of our generation, past ten years, has to be uh, Talladega Nights. And the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Now, if you're familiar with this movie at all, sorry, I'm not going to be able to look at you over there because I can't speak and turn my neck. If you're familiar with this movie at all, uh, you know that Will Ferrell plays Ricky Bobby, the kind of the NASCAR driver guy, and the most famous scene from this movie is the dinner scene, where they're all gathered around the dinner table, him with his family and with his friend, and if you will... Indulge me, I'd like to just read you an excerpt from this, um, this dinner scene. Ricky Bobby, who is Will Ferrell, is sitting at the dinner table, and he starts to pray, and he prays like this. <clears throat> Dear little baby Jesus, thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's and KFC and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, strapping sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. <laughs> And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. And he goes on and he says, Dear little baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you would use your baby Jesus' powers to heal him and his horrible leg. It smells terrible and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear, tiny, infant Jesus. And then his wife interrupts him and she goes, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. And he goes, well, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And then Cal who's his best friend, joins in and he goes, you know, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. And then one of the kids, Walker, says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurais. Then Cal, the friend, he jumps back in and he goes, okay, well, I like to think of Jesus with like giant eagle wings and he's singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band behind him. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. And so Ricky Bobby, you know, he gets control and he starts to pray again. And he goes, dear, eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus don't even know a word yet. <laughs> now, for as ridiculous as that scene is, I think it is highlighting something very interesting. And what it's highlighting, what they're putting their finger on, is that we all like to have our views of who Jesus is. Every one of us likes to picture Jesus a certain way, and he just happens to, you know, harmonize very well with our particular ideas and values. So, you know, for example, this is election year, so you have people on this side who say, well, I like to think of Jesus as Republican Jesus, and he just happens to fully endorse all the values of the Republican Party. 
And you have people on this side who say, well, no, no, I, I think of Jesus as Democrat Jesus, and he fully endorses all the values of the Democratic Party. I mean, ba- I mean basically, everybody is using Jesus. You've got Olympic athletes, you've got football players, you've got uh, celebrities. Everybody likes to say, this is what I like to think Jesus is like, and he happens to perfectly comport with my values and my dreams. And the reality is, you do this too. And so do I. We all like to have our views of Jesus. And so for some of you, you think of Jesus as like mythical Jesus. He's comic book Jesus who's written in some weird book that the church wrote hundreds of years ago. And so you don't really need to take him seriously because he's like a comic book figure. For others of you, you like to think of Jesus as like sweet, gentle, religious guru Jesus who's always hanging around sheep and children. (laughs) Some weirdo. (laughs) Or you like to think of Jesus as, you know, Jesus loves forgiving my sin and I love committing it. So we've got a great working relationship here. (laughs) But the reality is we are all confused about Jesus at some level. So what we're going to do this semester in RUF, for for the whole semester, we're going to take a look at the earliest written account about him, which is the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to look through the whole Gospel of Mark for this semester, just asking that question, who is Jesus? And tonight, all I want to do is I want to look at the first verse of the Gospel of Mark. Melissa, if you can throw it up there. Wow, that was good. (laughs) Next week and in the weeks ahead, we're going to get more into the meat and potatoes of what this book is actually about. But for tonight, I just want to look at the, the title, the opening line of this thing, if you will. And here it is. It reads like this. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark, right from the get-go, makes three radical claims. Here's what he's saying. He is saying Christianity is different than you may think. Jesus is more important than you may think. And salvation is bigger than you may think. All loaded into that one verse. And those are the three things I want to look at with you tonight briefly. Christianity is different than you may think. Jesus is more important than you may think. And salvation is bigger than you may think. Okay, first. Christianity is different than you may think. If you notice, it begins the beginning of the gospel. Now, if you grew up around the church or Christian circles at all, that word gospel had become so familiar to you, it's almost lost its meaning. But what that word basically means, in its most basic sense, is good news. That's what that word means, good news. And if you think about it, okay, what is news? News is the announcement that something has already happened. Right? That's what news is. It's a a proclamation of something that's already been done. It's like a news flash. It's like uh, breaking news. So um, you may or may not know this, but my wife, Catherine, is uh, pregnant. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, This is baby number two for us. She's due in December. Uh, I was there for the delivery of baby number one. I thought I was going to pass out. The Lord miraculously preserved me for it, though. Uh, but as you know, like a number of years ago, men were not allowed in the delivery room. You had to wait out in like a little waiting room. So if you would, just you know, picture me in December in the waiting room. Let's say it's the 1950s. So fast forward to December, but rewind to 1950 for the sake of this story. So I'm in the waiting room. Anxious, nervous, 
pacing. It feels like forever. I'm drinking that really crappy hospital coffee. Waiting for the news. And the doctor finally busts in and says, Matt, I've got good news. What? Okay, what? I'm on the edge of my seat. And he says, I need you to start regulating your sleep patterns. And you need to exercise every day. And you need to watch what you eat. Specifically the sugars and the salts in your diet. I would be like, you suck as a doctor. You are not good at your job. Because that's, that's not good news. What are you talking? That's not even news. That's just advice. You're just telling me what to do. But the reason I tell you that story is because if you are someone in this room who's not a Christian, you probably think that Christianity is basically advice. Advice on what you need to do. If this is how, it comes to you as a list of stuff that you need to do. And my guess is, if you are a Christian in the room as well, you think the same thing. That there's not much good news in your Christianity. It's just a list of advice. Here's what you have to do. You have to start reading your Bible more consistently. You have to start going to church every single week. You've got to pray more. You've got to go to more religious meetings. You've got to start sharing your faith with people that don't know Jesus. You've got to get more emotionally excited in worship. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to think this particular way. You've got to vote this particular way. Here's the list. Here's the advice. And Christianity comes to you first and foremost as gospel, as news. See, advice comes to you and says, here's what you need to do. But it News comes to you and says, here's what's already been done for you. You know, whenever you, whenever you get advice, whenever you want to do something, New Year's resolutions, you, you, you're inspired by something, you really want to do something, that is actually burdensome to you. Because now here's all the stuff that you've got to do. You've, you've, got, you've got to change your life. You've got to do this differently. Here's another way that you're probably going to fail. <laughs> when news comes to you, good news, you feel your burdens fall off. You feel liberated. And the good news of Christianity comes to you and it says, Jesus has lived in your place, he has died in your place, and he has risen in your place. And that means all that needs to be done for you has been done. And when you grab a hold of that, that that takes your burdens off, that liberates you. You, you're, You're actually decimated with just love and wonder. Don't you see how Christianity is now different from every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy? Because basically every other worldview and every philosophy comes to you as advice. Here's what you have to do. Here's how you have to pray. Here are the four steps to reach enlightened consciousness. Here's the seven steps to nirvana, whatever it is. Every other worldview, every other philosophy comes to you as advice. Christianity is different than you may think because it comes to you as news, as a gospel. That's the first thing we learn. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing that Mark says right from the beginning is that Jesus is more important than you may think. And there's two reasons I kind of want to highlight from this opening verse, if you will let me. The first is this. Jesus claimed to be God. If you look at the end of that verse, it says Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which is another way of calling Jesus God. And the reason why Mark calls Jesus God is because Jesus called Jesus God. He walked around and claimed to be God. Now, every few years, Time Magazine will put out like um, an article or something, or PBS will do these specials about who are the top 100 most influential people in the history of the world. 
And inevitably, Jesus is like in the top three, top ten, top three. Arguably, some people say he's the, the top one, the most influential person in the history of the world. And I'm, I'm not saying that uh, as a Christian minister. I'm just saying that's objectively true. That's just what happens. But think about this. There are lots of people that claim to be God. People have come on the scene and have claimed to be God in the past, but they've never been able to convince anybody that that's true except for like a small group of kind of ragtag followers who believe them. Everyone else kind of knows that they're kind of crazy and so doesn't really pay attention. And, and, and so these people who claim to be God have never had any real lasting impact on the world. But here's Jesus, and he's in both camps. One of the most influential people in the history of the world and claim to be God. That's interesting, don't you think? I mean, I think that is thought-provoking to say Jesus may be more important than we give him credit for. Here's the second reason why Jesus is more important than you may think. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It was Mark. <laughs> Trick question from the beginning. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, but... Every historian and biblical scholar will tell you that Mark was basically just the dictator. The dictator? What's the dictationist? Scribe. Scribe. We'll go with scribe. Let's put dictationist down as my doing. I came up with that term. Mark was the scribe. Peter was the one who was providing all these stories, all the data to Mark as he wrote the Gospel of Mark. So this raises the question, okay, who is Peter? Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. Now, if I went around campus and I claimed to be God, I may be able to convince some of you that that's true because, you know, after all, look at me. But for most of you, you would not believe that that was true. My point is, you can manage people's perception of you for a while and from a distance. Right? I mean, you can kind of let people think, you know, what, what you want them to think about you for a while. But the last person on earth that I would be able to convince that I was God would be my wife. Because I, I can manage your perception of me. I cannot manage my wife's perception of me. She knows me too well to ever believe that, I would, that I'm God. She knows how mean I am, how impatient I can be, how easily angry I can get. She knows that I'm not God. But here is Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends lived with him for several years, intimate. And here is this guy who is absolutely convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So much so (coughs) that later on in Peter's life, when he had the chance to deny that it's true, he refused and was actually killed for it. Peter was willing to go to the grave because he was so convinced, he was so astounded by who Jesus was that he was convinced Jesus was God, who he claimed to be. Now, okay, here's my whole point with this. Jesus is more important than you may think, simply by virtue of the fact that he claimed to be God, he's the most influential person in the history of the world, and he convinced those people closest to us that that was true. C.S. Lewis says this, Jesus is either of utmost importance or he is of no importance at all. But what he can't be is of some importance. In other words, Jesus is either crazy and a liar and evil and you should want nothing to do with him or you should bow down and worship him as your God and as your king. 
That is to say that there are really only two rational responses to who Jesus is. Some of you are in the group where you look at Jesus and you say, okay, I believe that he's God. I believe that he's my king. I'm struggling to follow him. My life is a mess, but I'm still struggling to follow him. That group actually makes sense. You make sense to me. The other group, you may be in this group where you say, you know, honestly, I don't know what I believe, but really this whole Christianity thing sounds crazy. Like a guy claiming to be God, I just, I'm, I just don't think I'm buying it. That sounds crazy. Look, if that is you, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here at RUF, and I'm glad that you've found this to be maybe a safe place where you can explore that question. But that group actually makes sense. Even though I, I may disagree with your conclusion, you at least make sense. This group makes sense, and this group that's struggling to call Jesus makes sense. The group that makes no sense is the group that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus is God, but it doesn't affect my life in any real way. Sure, he's God, sure, he's king, whatever, but I basically live my life the way that I live my life, and he has no authority or power to contradict me or to contradict my desires. And even when I know I'm out of line with what he wants for my life, I just, I really don't care, I don't think about it. Or if I do think about it, I'm just going to assume he's going to forgive me anyway. Don't you see, that makes no sense. There are, there are only two responses to Jesus that have any intellectual integrity at all. It's to say, I, I don't believe in him and I want nothing to do with him. Or it's, I'm going to bow down and worship you. But you can't just click like on Jesus. Nobody just likes Jesus. If, if you stick with us this semester and we go through the story of Mark together, you're going to see nobody just comes up to Jesus and pats him on the shoulder and says, you know, that was a great sermon, preacher. They either say, we worship you, and they bow down, and they kiss his feet, or they say, we have to kill him. There's no in-between. Look, the magnitude of Jesus' claims, they are so big. You better not just doubt that they're true. You better know that they are not true. Think, Think about it like this. Let's say you get a letter in your mailbox on official ASU stationery from the Appalachian State University's registrar's office. And it has your name at the top and printed in very official legalese. It says, you have been randomly selected for the Trivet Eggers Scholarship, which is given away once every 50 years, and you've been randomly selected. And here's how the scholarship works, is that you basically can forego all of your college classes, and you get the credit of a college degree with honors credentials. But... You can stay on campus for free for four more years doing the social aspects of college without having to do the studying, scholastic aspects of college. And when you graduate, you will be set up to have a job with any company that you want. Now, if you got that and read that, you would think, this sounds like a made-up scholarship. Sounds like that scholarship the RUF guy was talking about. <laughs> this can't be legit. But, okay, would you just crumple it up and throw it away and not think about it? Wouldn't you at least ask someone, an email, or call, or somebody, say, okay, is this for real? Because if you crumple it up and you throw it away and it is real, then you have blown it. You have missed out. <laughs> My point is this. Jesus' claim is so big, it is so massive, you better not just doubt that it's 
true, you better know that it's not true, which means you better investigate, you better explore, you better ask questions, because if it is true, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and you just crumple it up and throw him away without thinking about it twice, you have missed out. You've, you're, you've blown it. Your life is worse as a result. So I want to invite you, really, this is the best place for you to personally explore that question. Keep coming back to RUF. Keep exploring that question. Who really is Jesus? Because that's what we're going to do this semester. He's way more important than you may think he is. That's the second thing. Third thing, and I'll be super brief. Salvation is bigger than you may think it is. If you look, it says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. It uses that word Christ, which is no, it's not his last name. It is a title. <laughs> Party of two for Christ. <laughs> it's a title. It's a Greek word that means anointed one. And, and the, the, the kind of history about that word is whenever a king would be coronated, Back in the day, they would anoint this king with oil. And so there was this huge expectation that one day someone would come who would be the anointed one, the king, the king of all kings who would come and fix everything, put everything to right. And Mark is beginning right from the first verse and saying, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that one, that long-expected one who is going to come and fix everything, which assumes... That things need fixing. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. I mean, if you look out at the world and you see death and you see genocide and sex trafficking and poverty, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and even if you look at your own life, kind of your, your life on a smaller scale, I mean, your life is still out of control, right? I mean, you feel the anxiety, the guilt, the worry, the shame, the depression, the anger. You keep hurting people, they keep hurting you. You keep doing things you don't really want to do, but you keep doing them. Your life is a mess too. The assumption is is that everything in the world and everything in it is broken. But Jesus is the one who has come to fix it and who is in the process of fixing it. I'll end with this. I'll wrap up with this. Um, There was uh, an author that wrote uh, an article in the Atlantic Monthly a few years ago, and he was telling the story about when he went to New York City to see this great, famous jazz musician named Wynton Marsalis play in a small little New York jazz club. So here's this, you know, cool, hip jazz club. This author goes, and this famous jazz musician, Marsalis, is up there on his trumpet doing his trumpet thing, and he's got the band behind him, and it's just like this fabulous, flawless night. And towards the end of the night, Uh, the rest of the band steps down and Marsalis is up there by himself playing the trumpet and and the the author is just saying it's just superb. It's just like the the best jazz he's ever heard. And he's at his last song and he's playing this like American standard ballad famous thing with a very simple melody and he's playing this thing and he's he's at the last kind of bar of music, the last little um, phrase and he's just kind of slowly repeating it, winding it down and about to finish the last three notes and bring the whole night out to just this perfect ending. And right as he is on these last three notes, before he can get it out, someone's cell phone goes off. And here's how the author described the ringtone that went off. They said, it was like a rapid, sing-songy melody in electronic beeps. 
So everybody starts, you know, like, kind of laughing and nervously picking up their drinks again. And the guy, you know, takes the phone call and kind of sheepishly ducks out of the room. And the author writes on one of these, you know, the little cocktail napkins, magic ruined. But Marsalis is still at the mic with the trumpet. And he's sitting there and he kind of raises his eyebrow. And then he plays on the trumpet the melody of the ringtone. And he plays it once, and then he plays it again, and he plays it again, and he kind of goes faster, and he starts to improvise, and he starts to riff on it, and he starts going off on it with up-tempo, down-tempo, he's changing keys, he's going all over the place, and he's slowly reweaving it back into that original song that he was playing before the ringtone went off. Reweaves it, connects, final three notes, wraps it up, Fantastic. Now, the author had written Magic Ruined, but the magic was not ruined because they were in the presence of a master. Now, Jesus is being claimed right here by Mark to be the master, the one who can take the silly chaos of your life and reweave it back into music and back into beauty. And the way that he does it is he takes the chaos of your life and he lets it crush him on the cross so that when he gets brought back to life, he ushers in a whole new way of life, a life of beauty and a life of joy, a life of humility. This is what Jesus has done and this is what Jesus is being claimed to be. He is the master. The question I want to leave you with is this. Who do you think he is? And have you even thought what your answer is? Does your answer even make sense? Does it take into account the data that is out there? I really do want to invite you to come back, join us, explore that question with us, wrestle with us as we try to answer that question, because it is the question. And that's your invitation tonight. Let me pray. Jesus, you indeed are the master. And I know uh, many of these folks don't believe that. They are uh, burnt out with Christianity. They're bored by it. They're just ready to walk away, ready to do the, uh, the college thing. Other people in here are buried under guilt. And they just feel unworthy of your love or unworthy of your forgiveness. Others are thrilled to be here and are eager to commune with you more and to learn more about who you are and what you've done. Father, wherever these folks find themselves, I do pray that you would open their eyes to see who your son Jesus is. I pray, would you blow up our fake and our false conceptions and would you draw us deep into wonder and love and joy beyond our wildest dreams. And we do pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.